Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. This is the show that brings you up close and personal with some of the most accomplished and influential songwriters, from the well-known to the ones you should know. On each episode, we feature a different writer, sharing his or her insights into the writing process, their approach to the craft, and the stories behind the songs, from their hits to some of the lesser-known tunes. And we'd love to hear from you, so let us know what you think of the show by sharing your thoughts with us at songcraftshow.com. On this episode of Songcraft, we welcome Dallas Frazier. Dallas first appeared as a recording artist on Capitol Records in 1954. He moved from California to Nashville in 1963, eventually placing 42 songs in the top 20 on Billboard's country singles chart, and 10 of those climbed to the number one position. His music has been recorded by George Jones, Willie Nelson, Merle Haggard, Johnny Cash, Loretta Lynn, Emmylou Harris, Charlie Pride, Dolly Parton, Randy Travis, Ricky Skaggs, Patti Loveless, and countless others. He wrote There Goes My Everything, which was the Country Music Association's very first single of the year in 1967. He was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1976. But there's a lot more to Dallas Frazier than country music. His first hit was the number one pop smash, Alley Oop, in 1960. He appeared on the Billboard Country Pop and R&B charts an astounding 151 times. In addition to his country recordings, Dallas's songs have been covered by Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, The Beach Boys, Tina Turner, Peggy Lee, Lucinda Williams, and even Bob Dylan. He has won BMI Performance Awards for more than 20 of his songs, including 14 Carat Mind, If My Heart Had Windows, What's Your Mama's Name, Child, and Elvira. As a solo artist, Dallas did several albums of his own, and in fact, one lucky listener will have the opportunity to win a Dallas Frazier CD that was released on Raven Records that compiles his two albums, Elvira and Tell It Like It Is. To enter to win, go to our website at songcraftshow.com and sign up for our mailing list. Every new sign up on our mailing list this month will be entered to win and will announce the winner on our website, songcraftshow.com, in the news section at the end of this month. But right now, I want to welcome our guest, Dallas Frazier, who joins us from his home outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Dallas, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thank you, Scott. Thank you, Paul. Okay, so let's start right at the beginning, Dallas. You were born in Oklahoma in 1939, but moved to Central California when you were still a child. What brought your family out west? Well, we were part of uh, the the Grapes of Wrath uh, thing that was happening then. A lot of people left uh, Oklahoma because of the Dust Bowl and went to California to get work. And uh, we didn't have the Dust Bowl in our our part of Oklahoma, but uh, there was a, a terrible uh, depression there, you know, and, and the work wasn't plentiful. So my dad and, and the family uh, picked up and moved out of Oklahoma during... World War II, right at the tail end, because he was in the Navy in World War II. But anyway, we went to California uh, hearing about all the work that was out there, all the, the fruit picking, cotton picking, and all that stuff. Uh, Dallas, um, one of my favorites of your songs is California Cotton Fields. And it's not a song that was a big hit, but it is one that has been covered by several people, including uh, Graham Parsons and Merle Haggard. And it deals with some of those uh, Dust Bowl era migration themes like we were talking about. My drifting memory goes back to the spring of 43 When I was just a child in mama's arms My daddy plowed the ground and prayed someday he could leave This rundown mortgaged Oklahoma farm And then one night I heard my daddy saying to my mama 
that he'd finally sicken up to go. California was his dream of paradise, for he had seen pictures in magazines that told him so. California cotton fields, where labor camps were filled with worried men with broken dreams. California cotton fields, as close to wealth as Daddy ever came. Well, I tell you what, that uh, that song has a lot of my biography in it, and uh, I lived in labor camps and and uh, picked cotton when I was a kid, and and uh, we we were poor people and had a hard time. Uh, you know, if moving to California, you'd think, well, everybody's got indoor bathrooms in California. Well, my, my experience as a kid, well, had outdoor bathrooms and and uh, old uh, wood stoves and and things like that. And uh, but but uh, the labor camps and and the cotton fields and all of that—that's uh, very much a part of my life and very much part of of my writing. You mentioned how it's a part of your writing. Um, we've seen how the narrative of your life influenced that song in particular, but how did the the way that you grew up, how did that shape who you became as a writer and the way you approached your career? There's so many songs I would not have written had it not been for hard times and and, and, uh, and other experiences as well, you know, but, but uh, there, there's, there was so much uh, to that. Uh, uh, it put a work ethic in me and... Uh, and consequently, you know, I've never really, I, I, I'm a car bug. I've blowed a lot of money on cars. But I was too conservative to ever buy a big a big house uh, or something like that. I just, I was just afraid uh, uh, of debt, yeah. you know, because I was raised up like that, being afraid of it. Right, right. Well, Dallas, there was a well-known uh, dance hall in Bakersfield, California, near that area where you were growing up, uh, called the Rainbow Gardens. And that's the place where I know Merle Haggard met his real hero, Lefty Frizzell. And it's a place where a good bit of the history that we've come to call the Bakersfield Sound originally unfolded. And I understand that you won a talent contest there uh, when you were a kid in the early 1950s, which proved to be the start of your career in entertainment, really. Um, so tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh it, it, it was at the Rainbow Gardens, and Terry, Pre- well, Ferlin Husky, he was working as Terry Preston at that time, and uh, he had a band there, and he had a contest, and, and I heard about it on the radio, and, and I talked my dad into uh, taking me. But anyway, long story short, I, I, I won the contest, and Ferlin offered me a job. He said, I'd like for you to come and work for me, Dallas. And he said, and then eventually he said, could you move in with me? And said, and, and, and do a little traveling with me and this and that. But anyway, I did. My, uh, my folks let me do that. And uh, so uh, that was my start. And he introduced me to Ken Nelson of Capitol Records. And what eventually, a couple of years after that, uh, he signed me when I was 14 years old. So how old were you when you moved in with Ferlin? I was 12. And you actually had a fairly notable roommate at that time, right? I did. I, I don't know how you heard about that, but I, I did. Tommy Collins was living with yeah, him. Yeah, you, you know, not everybody knows the name Tommy Collins today, but he was a recording artist on Capitol Records in the 50s. And as a songwriter, Buck Owens uh, did an entire album of Tommy's songs. Uh, Tommy wrote, If You Ain't Lovin', You Ain't Livin', which was, of course, a, a big hit for Farron Young and uh, later for George Strait. Uh, he also wrote Carolyn and The Roots of My Raising for Merle Haggard and is really a guy that's considered a songwriter's songwriter that's right and uh 
uh, Tommy and, 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 and I, we shared a bedroom and, uh, and, and we started learning the trade under the tutelage of, of uh, the tutelage, I should say, uh, of <laughs> and Husky and Simon Crum. Right. Simon Crum, of course, was the kind of the comic alter ego of Furlan Husky. Yeah. Well, and you know, rooming with a guy like Tommy, who was a little bit older than you, what did you learn from him? My first guitar chord. That, that, that I remember learning that from him, and uh, and I learned a lot of things. Tommy was a, kind of a philosophical guy, and you know he he would uh, he very dramatic in his writing, and uh, I, I just uh, I just I learned a lot about writing just being around him. You know, we we talk about songs and music, and he he, he was he was a good mentor for me. Now, what can you tell us about the first song that you ever wrote? I remember a song I wrote called um, Tongue-Tied Tenderfoot Day, <laughs> and I was about 11 years old. Wow. I would copy, to like, what I heard on the radio. I wouldn't copy the songs, but I would copy the subject matter. And I remember when I was 11 years old, I wrote this song that says, Tongue-Tied Tenderfoot Day, wish I could go in a bar and drink my fill without taking one of them headache pills. But I guess <laughs> I'll never be that brave because my name is Tongue-Tied Tenderfoot Dave. <laughs> Well, that's pretty good, Dallas. <laughs> well, <laughs> they didn't beat my door down for it, but I did mail it off to some people, probably in L.A. or New York, and they said, send us some money and we'll publish it for you. <laughs> right, right, one wow. of those scams. But, Dallas, you know, even listening to the title of that song, it sounds like you knew what you were doing. I mean, at the age of 11, you had alliteration there with the three T's, tongue-tied tenderfoot. I mean, it's like you just had a natural knack for this. I, I did, uh, and, and I don't know where it came from. Um, my folks weren't into to music, uh, but, but I, I concentrated on that, and, and, and I knew uh, I used it a lot. I didn't even know the term uh, alliteration. Uh, I, I'd never even heard that, but I knew that it sounded good when, when, when I did it, and... Uh, and I, I used a lot of that throughout my career, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, being in Bakersfield and obviously living with Furlan and Tommy Collins, you were very much immersed in country music. And I know that you were singing on a lot of the regional country music TV shows in Bakersfield and, and Los Angeles. Um, but aside from country, what were some of your other musical influences? Well, I started playing trumpet. In the in the fifth grade, and I got interested in the blues and and, and especially uh, New Orleans stuff, Dixieland, and uh, I just really got absorbed with that stuff, and and I loved it, and and I've never been one that I just have to be in some category, you know, I I, I resent that, uh, being pushed in you know in, in, into one category and and you can't break out, you know, I like Pavarotti, I think he's got one of the greatest voices ever. And uh, uh, I like uh, Louis Armstrong was one of my favorites, and I got to see him when I was 18 years old at a, at a venue in L.A. It was just uh, uh, that started growing on me. And there's a lot of songs I've I've written I would not have written uh, without uh, my trumpet background. Sure. And, and as you say, you're not someone who wants to be put into a specific musical category. Um, and I think a lot of people do think of Dallas Frazier as a country songwriter. But your first big hit actually was not a country song at all. He's the toughest man that is alive. Wearing 
close from a wildcat's hide. He's the king of the jungle jive. Look at that caveman go. Well, that was, of course, Alley Oop, which was a hit for the Hollywood Argyles in 1960. Dallas, tell us a little bit about how you came to write that song. I was working at a cotton gin in Pond, California. And my stepdad was a ginner, and, and uh, I just started kind of riffing one day. I just was, uh, uh, I, I got to thinking about the cartoon character, Alley Oop, you know. And and then before you know it, I was just going, oop, oop. Uh, uh, and I was working uh, in a cotton trailer on a, what you call a suction pipe that sucks the cotton out of the trailer. But anyway, long story short, I, I would just, uh, I started just kind of uh, uh, fooling around like a songwriter does with something. And before you know it, I, I had me a, uh, like a little uh, chorus, you know. And, uh, and then, then from there, uh, it just came together, you know. I constantly, during those times, I was thinking songs, uh, songwriting all the time, and uh, and and I did throughout my career. And a lot of times, I, I st- I'm still doing that. You know, yeah. I don't write a lot of it down, but I'm still doing it. <laughs> but <laughs> right, it, but right. it just it just came to me. You know. Yeah. Well, the Hollywood Argyles was not really a band per se, so much as a studio creation. So, um, tell us a little bit about how that record actually came about. Well, I met Gary Paxton. Uh, uh, in Los Angeles, uh, uh, I'd written a song a, a while before I met him, and but anyway, uh, 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 I wound I met him and I, and he was he was recording. I said, "Hey, Gary, I got something. You know, I got something for you." Right, and for those who don't know, uh, Gary Paxton was half of the duo Skip and Flip, and uh, he went on to um, produce a bunch of records for the Association and Tommy Rowe, and uh, probably the Monster Mash is the the best known record that that he's associated with. How did you actually meet Gary? There was a service station next to uh, right next to Toddler's Studio. Just a bunch of kids musician kids that hung out there but uh but anyway uh some of it's a little bit foggy to me but i did i did after i met him we went into the studio and i played the song uh for him and he he loved it you know he just loved it and uh he he cut it probably within two or three weeks and uh, uh he he put it out and and it was just i mean overnight it was it was probably one of the the fastest uh, you know, hits. I've, uh, the, well, I've never had anything like it. I've never had anything like it that just hit the charts like that. It went straight up to number one, didn't oh, it? Oh yeah, it was just. I mean, it was a mo- what, what we call a monster back in those days. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the Hollywood Argyles version of Alley Oop went to number one, as Paul mentioned uh, in 1960. But there was also a recording by Dante and the Evergreens that hit number 15, and there was even a version by a group called uh, the Dinosaurs that. Uh, I believe hit somewhere around uh, number 50. So this is your very first hit record as a songwriter. And you're on the same billboard chart three times simultaneously with the exact same, In the song. same billboard. Yeah. The same weekly uh, issue of the, of the billboard. Yeah. And I, I've never, I've never done it since. Wow. Well, you were talking a second ago about you were thinking about songs all the time. You were thinking about writing, and here you are ruling the Billboard chart all of a sudden with one song. I mean, just thinking about your career and your future, what was going through your mind at this point? Well, I tell you, it, it might seem complicated, but I'm just going to put it as simple as I can. I, I had a, I had a, a, a Christian experience um, not a long time after that, a year or so, and and uh, and I just I just left the business. Now you had moved up to Portland, Oregon, for a while. Is that That's right? That's right. You had mentioned that you had quit the business for a while. Uh, what were you doing up there in Portland? 
I, w- I was doing without. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> uh, to put uh, it bluntly, but but I had I had a hard time. I worked odd jobs and uh, you know dollar an hour kinds of, of jobs and 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 I was a good I, I was a good employee. Right. And I think it was when you were in Portland that Furlan Husky came back into your life, right? That's right, and that's why I moved to uh, to Tennessee. He he said, well, "What are you doing, Dallas?" And I said, "Well, not not much, really." And he said, "How'd you co- like to come back to Tennessee and 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 write for me?" And I said, "Okay, you know." So my wife and two little girls, we we packed up and 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 uh, got a train ticket. We came we came to Tennessee on a train. Well, actually kind of sounds like a song title right there. Um, so you came to Nashville, and you'd been writing in California. Uh, how was it different? How was the environment different once you came to Nashville? I really liked it immediately. Uh, it was friendly. Uh, uh, Nashville was kind of a, a big family thing, and, and uh, you'd knock on somebody's door and go in, make an appointment or whatever. You know, it, it was just it was wide open. And and the people, I, I love the South, uh, and the people were just really, really nice. But the main thing that happened to me when I moved here, I could see that I could do this. I and I, I just had faith. I, I, I understood the music business in Nashville when I got here. Uh, I looked at it. I, I heard some of it, and and I knew that I can do this. And uh, maybe that same attitude wouldn't work today. Uh, probably wouldn't. It's more complicated. But at that time, it was not that complicated. It was simple hometown uh, business. But I knew I could do it, and, and I buckled down. I worked hard, too. I, I didn't just fool around and just write a song when it came to me. Uh, I, I crammed. I worked. I worked 24 hours without stopping. And did... Paid Oh, did you, um, you talk about the, the discipline of songwriting. Were you a person who went into an office every day and, and kept real structured hours, or what did that look like for you? No, I, I was disciplined, but I didn't have an agenda, so to speak. I didn't go to an office like Monday through Friday like some of the guys do, and that has really worked for some of the guys. But I would take off in a car and just ride the country roads, you know, and, and look at old houses and and trees and go down by on a creek bank and sit there and think with it with a notebook and uh and and then i'd I'd gather up my ideas and then i'd go home and i'd just uh hole up uh in in uh with my old upright piano and just and stay there until i got them you know well it's kind of like we said before it's like we're seeing that dust bowl oklahoma depression era work ethic showing up in your songwriting and the way you approach your craft. You're right, Paul. And, and another thing, too, there's a lot of fear. Uh, and I'm not proud of that, but, but, uh, but fear, uh, you know, that, that kind of fear, that, that, that pressure, like you've got, you've got to make this work. You know, your, your livelihood depends on it. Your family depends on it. And poverty, poverty was a real motivator. Wow. <laughs> well, I guess the motivation worked because <laughs> you, uh, you obviously did very well in Nashville. And uh, Timber, I'm Falling, which was recorded by Furlan Husky, became your very first BMI award-winning country song in 1964. And I'd like to listen to a little of that. Timber, I'm Falling.
Okay, now I've got to ask you. The songwriting credits on Timber I'm Falling say Ferlin Husky and Dalton Timber. Why were you credited as Dalton Timber? On okay, that, that was Ferlin's idea. Uh, and Ferlin was a character. We don't have time to go into all of his story. <laughs> he was one crazy man, and, and, and I loved him. He, he just had a great sense of humor. But he was always giving himself, you know, he, he, would always, he had about five different names he recorded under. But he said, Dallas, he said, you ought to change your name. He, and, and I thought, well, you know, here I, I'm living with him right now, so I'll, I'll let him call the shots. It was ridiculous. It was. It was just a real dumb thing. Well, you know, you you talk about moving in with Ferlin Husky when you were in Bakersfield, and then you moved to Nashville, and you lived with Ferlin Husky when you were starting out there. So Ferlin was obviously a a very pivotal and influential person in your life and your career. Yeah. Well, I owe a lot to him. Um, um, I, I I really do, and and uh, he always believed in me, and you know it 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 paid off because uh, he still uh, retained uh, half the publishing on There Goes My Everything. I think Sony has the other half, but he made uh, all you know just for the, for the little bit of investment in me, which was less than a thousand dollars. He you know made a small fortune. <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like he had a good eye for your talent. Yeah. Well, in 1965, uh, you had another single on Furlan called Money Greases the Wheels. Uh, you had a top 40 on Farron Young that year called Nothing Left to Lose. Uh, but another of the real classic Dallas Frazier songs was also released that year. Uh, and again, it's not a country song. Well, that was Mohair Sam, which Charlie Rich recorded for the Smash label, went to number 21 on the pop charts. Dallas, tell us a little bit about how you wrote that song. Ray Baker, he was my publisher, he came to the house and he said, Dallas, Charlie Rich is cutting uh, tomorrow at 10 o'clock in the morning. And he said, I told him you had something for him. And I said, well, what do you have in mind, Ray? And he said, I don't know. He said, I figured, <laughs> I figured you could right, come up with right. something. And I hit the piano. This is like 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And I hit the piano. And I'm banging away on the thing. And I can't, I can't, I just, I, I just can't do it. I just can't come up with something unique or whatever. So I, I told Sharon, I said, I got to get up at 5 o'clock. I said, I got to hit that piano. And she gets me up. And I sit down and I start playing and playing and playing without a break. I, and, and, and I got that idea about Mo Sam because I, Ferlin had given me an old mohair suit and uh, this dark blue, and and I, I, and I, I guess that had something to do with it. But 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 I started working on it, and it came together. Once I got the idea, it came together pretty quick. Ray came by about nine o'clock in the morning, picked the song up. I had a little Wallens Menorah Wallens sack. Uh, I gave him the spool of tape, and he runs down there to uh, to uh, Mercury Records. And uh, Charlie loved it. They cut it at <laughs> wow. 10 o'clock. 
Man, that is such a great story. And you know, uh, Mohair Sam is actually part of one of my, uh, another one of my favorite stories about rock and roll. And it's the day that the Beatles met Elvis. And the way I heard it is that they went to Elvis's house and kind of in the awkwardness, they just sat around. And, and I remember Elvis absentmindedly just picked out the bass line on Mohair Sam while they were thinking of things to talk about. Is that right? Yeah, I've heard that story. And I thought, well, Elvis, why didn't you cut the song? You know, right. he loved right. it so much. I think he had a jukebox, too, in his house. And he had okay. that thing on his jukebox, you know. And uh, even Quincy Jones uh, cut Mohair Sam. Wow. Had a great record on it, a, a, a single. Amazing. And it was a great thing. Huh. But anyway... And, you know, I never did get to meet Elvis. Uh, I just hate that. He recorded like five of my songs and and, uh, and, and laid, a, laid a track down that he never got his voice on. That would uh, I hate that. But I, I would have loved to have, to have met him, and it just worked out. I didn't get to. I talked right. to him on the phone once. Wow. How did that phone conversation go? It's good. He called me, and he wanted to talk. He, he was looking for a song. And he, he said, in the vein of, of uh, Aretha Franklin, she had a chain, chain, chain out at that time. And he was looking for a real bluesy thing. And and he said, you think you can come up with something? And uh, I said, well, I'll sure try. And you know what? I, uh, I just didn't come up with anything uh, I, I was satisfied with. Uh, he was... He said something like chain, chain, chain. And he shouldn't have told me that because every time I sat down to write, I'd start thinking about chain, chain, chain. <laughs> right, and, right. Uh, and I couldn't write another chain, chain. Yeah, right, but uh, right, but yeah, anyway, yeah. Uh, I was grateful that he recorded what he did of mine. Right. Well, you were talking a second ago about Ray Baker. Uh, comment a little bit about what's important um, when it comes to the relationship between a songwriter and their publisher. Well, Ray believed in me for one thing, and, and uh, he, he borrowed the money to start his, start his company with. And, 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 and at that time, I was, I was the company, you know. And, yeah. and uh, I did the writing, and he took care of the plugging. And he worked hard, too. He pounded the streets down there. He would take my songs down and, and just go from one, one uh, record company to the other uh-huh. until he got something going. And then once, 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 uh, once we got hot, you know, then the doors really started opening. Yeah, I think a lot of songwriters uh, think about the craft and the art of songwriting, but sometimes thinking about the business side of songwriting is something that gets neglected, and it is so important for uh, songwriters to find those people who are really going to be an advocate for them uh, in the music industry. You know, I, I tell young writers, be careful about signing with huge companies, the big Exxons of the music <laughs> business. Right. There, there is some, there's some clout there. There, there, is, there is some good in it, but, but they don't need you. They don't need you, and you, you can easily wind up just on the shelf someplace. Yeah. If you sign, if you're working with people that are still hungry, they will get out and, and, and they'll work on your material. Now, another little gem from around this era was Gene Pitney and Melba Montgomery's duet of your song, Baby Ain't That Fine. And uh, I bring that song up because Columbia Records just released the complete recordings that Bob Dylan did with the band uh, in 1967, uh, which have come to be called the Basement Tapes. And Bob actually recorded a, a bit of that uh, song, although Though it's a rough version. Um, he did a little bit of Baby Ain't That Fine. I'm wondering if you've had a chance to hear that yet. I, I haven't heard the song. Really? I mean, here's, here's cut. Well, let's listen to some of it now. Baby Ain't That Fine Baby Ain't That Fine Baby 
Now, I hear that Bob Dylan was a fan of your writing. Now, and I wonder, did you ever get the chance to meet him? I met him at a party at Johnny Cash's house, and uh, Bob Bob was uh, Bob was Johnny's guest, and uh, uh, he, he was having a get together, and he's and and uh, Johnny said, uh, Bob, uh, I'm a, I want to invite some of the writers that that you like, and he and and I was one of them that, that Bob Dylan liked. And so anyway, I was invited. I got to meet with him and talk with him. And, you know, he mentioned that song at that time. That was probably 69. And he told me he liked that song. Maybe he had already cut it. You mentioned Johnny Cash. And I think, you know, Johnny was really one of those guys who was responsible for championing people like Bob Dylan and and Chris Christopherson and those whose approach to writing was kind of different than what was going on in Nashville in that era. And as someone who really was right in in the thick of it, can you comment a little on how how Nashville was changing at that time. Well, uh, it started happening, uh, and and I was probably one of the guys that you know that uh, I did R and B stuff in the '60s right. uh, yeah. here, and and uh, but but this, this town was kind of closed, uh, so to speak, to to outside things. You know, the Opry kind of ruled the roost. Uh, at least that's my take yeah. on it. And and but then it started broadening, and and then and they started. Uh, uh, opening up a little bit and and i'm glad they did because some great music came out of that you know so uh, like like chris christopherson's for, for the good times so what what a what a great song sunday morning coming down amazing song yeah amazing songs and and uh, wouldn't it wouldn't it be a shame had had that not happened here and and i think it just happened a little bit at a time you know but anyway uh gradually uh it opened up and and uh and and the music business started getting bigger. You know. I mentioned Melba Montgomery a moment ago, and she was, of course, George Jones's duet partner before uh, Tammy Wynette. And George Jones, like Bob Dylan, was a Dallas Frazier fan. He had top 10 singles of several of your songs between 1966 and 1968, including I'm a People, I Can't Get There From Here, If My Heart Had Windows. Uh, and in fact, George released an entire album uh, called George Jones Sings the Songs of Dallas Frazier in 1968. And I understand that he recorded somewhere around 80 of your tunes throughout his career. Um, now, did you write those songs specifically with George in mind? Uh, I can't I can't recall that uh but I wrote a lot of songs with him in mind, so there's a good chance that most of those songs, or maybe all of them, were written with him in mind. Because I, I had a close uh, relationship with him uh, for for a few years, and and uh, and uh, uh, there were there were a lot of songs just aimed at him. And I did a lot of writing like that, where I would aim at a person, just like with Connie Smith. You know, I wrote a lot of songs. Uh, especially for her. And and when I think of some of the big hits that you had uh, with Connie, uh, I think of Ain't Had No Lovin' or If It Ain't Love, Let's Leave It Alone or Ain't Love a Good Thing. You really seem to do well uh, with her by writing songs with the words Ain't and Love in the title. And I've always wondered if that was on purpose. You know what? I never thought about it. You, you, yeah. you, just, you, you just brought it all to mind. <laughs> I'll now, have to investigate that. So, Dallas, with these relationships you were building, friendships with people like George Jones and with Connie, were you able to just continue sitting down and playing them songs that you'd written? Or, you know, being in Nashville, did you have to go the whole demo route and recording full-blown demos it for these was things? Six of one and half a dozen of the other, so mm-hmm. to speak. Uh, if, 
if uh, if it required it, maybe just a guitar or a piano, and and uh, if if it's mailing something off, of course we'd do a demo, you know. But, right, but sure, yeah, sure. but to answer your question, we did it both ways, you know. And 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 now I understand that 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 the old way is completely gone, you know, of singing it, singing it to somebody in person. That that that's unheard of now. You have to have a full blown demo. Right. It makes me wonder if some of those guys don't have ears, you know, <laughs> supply the ears for them. Yeah. I think it's notable that you mentioned that you were friends with George Jones. And I get the sense that maybe Nashville at that time was a little bit more relationship oriented, that uh, songwriters and, and artists uh, socialized together. And you know, I don't know, do you think that it was sort of more personal back then? Oh, yes. Yes, it was. And, and even the recording, you know, it was unheard of for an artist. Uh, to not be in the studio when they were cutting their their next single, uh, but now uh, you know the, the artist uh, they, they cut all the tracks and everything. The artist comes in uh, three months later by themselves with their entourage, or you know, and 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 uh, puts their voice on. But things like that, you know, that's this. Uh, it took a, it took the family thing out of yeah. it. Yeah, took the closeness. Uh, yeah, out of it. Yeah. And, but it was a lot more sociable. It 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 was because the smaller something is, the the, the more sociable it is. And when it gets big, unfortunately, uh, uh, it, that that does happen. It happens in all businesses. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's just sort of the nature of the beast sometimes. Um, well, Dallas, uh, at the end of 1966, uh, you had your first number one country song with Jack Green's recording of There Goes My Everything, and I'd like to hear a little of that. I hear footsteps slowly walking As they gently walk across a lonely floor And a voice is softly saying Darling, this will be goodbye forevermore. There goes my reason for living. There goes the one of my dreams. There goes my only There Goes My Everything was the Country Music Association's very first uh, single of the year that they ever awarded. Um, and it actually went on to, in addition to being a, a huge country hit, was a top 20 pop hit uh, for Engelbert Humperdinck in 1967. And it's really become a standard. And there's versions uh, by Elvis Presley and Ray Price, Tammy Wynette, Loretta Lynn, Kitty Wells, Merle Haggard, and George Jones. Um, probably one of the better known songs from your catalog. Uh, is there a story? Story behind the writing of that one. Well, that song. Well, Farland Husky, he was getting a divorce. Oh, <laughs> but wow. when I first moved to town, that's one of the, it might have been the very first song that I wrote. Uh, and I was living with him. It was the winter of '63, '64, and uh, I, uh, it it was kind of taking its toll on him because he, he did love this 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 lady that he was getting a divorce from his wife. But anyway, uh, I, I, I wanted to write something for him, and and uh, and I and I wrote that song, and I didn't really think that 
you know, I knew it was a really a good song, but I just didn't, I just, I never dreamed it would do what it did. Right. Well, I mean, obviously it connected with a lot of people. And uh, in the story of Dallas Frazier, of course, we see Verlin Husky once again um, raising his head. Uh, he, he's a part of the story. Oh, isn't yes. He? I mean, yeah, it seems like his fingerprints are pretty much all over this yeah, story. Yeah, all over. He, his fingerprints are all over my career, you know, and I'm, I'm just really glad. Yeah, you know, he did yeah a, a long history there. Well, another one of your classic hits, uh, Son of Hickory Holler's Tramp, came out in 1968. And the lyrics uh, tell the story of a mother with 14 children who turned to prostitution after her alcoholic husband runs off with another woman. Um, and the words to the song describe the neighbors who gossip, uh, but they don't lend a helping hand. And that's some pretty heavy, socially conscious themes for Nashville in the 1960s. And uh, I'm curious how people reacted to that. Well... It started a war. People, uh, it was banned from banned from several stations, and 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 then the people that loved it, though they just loved it. A song is always blown out of proportion if it's good, you know, like a story. Uh, it's just blown completely out of proportion. Fourteen kids for one thing. That that's too many. You <laughs> right, know what sure, I'm saying? Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, songs are gra- exaggerated a lot of times. But I don't, I don't see anything like uh, dirty about the song. I don't, I don't see anything uh, that's just foul. Uh, um, I can't imagine a neighborhood really, in a way. I mean, somebody would have helped her. You know right, what I mean? Okay. That's the only part of the song that I might, uh, that I might say I stretched it a little bit. But songs have to be stretched, yeah. Yeah, especially something right, like right. that. But I think right. it's one of the best songs I ever wrote. Yeah, and uh, I, I would agree with you. Um, but you know what I think is interesting about you, Dallas, is is when I I think of a song like Mohair Sam. Uh, really, that song is all about the groove. But then you have these richly thematic songs like Son of Hickory Holler's Tramp or Beneath Still Waters, and you were always uh, very much a, a versatile writer. Um, and there's a certain soulfulness that I think runs throughout your music. Um, given that you've covered a lot of ground stylistically, how would you describe the Dallas Frazier style? Not in a box. That would be the first thing I would say. And that just happened with me. Uh, I've had, I had a great variety of influence when I was younger. Like I said, the trumpet. Uh, in, in some ways, had I just... Had I just uh, narrowed it all down and just stayed on one thing. I might, I might have wrote more hit songs, you know, like in the country field or something. But you are right. I have a feel. I have a feel in 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 my heart uh, for blues. I mean, real blues, not just oh, uh, you know, since you're gone, baby, I miss you, miss you, miss you. You know, I'm talking about just real, real heart things. And I have I have a feel for that. And and I have a I, I think I have a great sense of humor and and uh, and I love humor I love humor I uh, you, you just you can only get away with so much of it right. though yeah. tone it down yeah and, and and you know a lot of times it seems that that songwriters can fall into the trap of of just thinking too hard um, trying to have this this you know mind altering concept when really sometimes with a song like Mohair Sam or like like a Ray Charles song or some of these songs that really depend so heavily on the groove and and it just set up such a great feel and that uh, maybe it can be simple you know maybe a song can be simple lyrically and really depend on just what the music and the rhythm and the feel are doing what do you think about that uh, uh, I'm I'm glad you asked that because I want to tell you what great songs are not necessarily great lyrics 
uh, while what people, they're great lyrics, all right, but what people call great lyrics. Uh, Mohair Sam is one of the best songs that I've ever written. And why, why would I say that? Because in the first place, it, it's, it's different. I can't put it in a category with My Heart Had Windows. It's another category altogether. Uh, it's a groove. It, it's uh, uh, the words fit with the music. There's a marriage of, of melody and lyric. Uh, the, the the phrasing is good, and just throwing in what am hmm. It, hmm. instead of just what is, right, right, you know, right, or, or right. Yeah, I mean, some people can just wind up just thinking too much, and instead of having some fun, just being groove oriented and letting the song just kind of happen. Yeah, and to do that, sometimes it it uh, you've got to really be a good songwriter to connect the, to make that kind of music on purpose. Right, exactly. Now, you're just lucky. That's another thing, but to make it. Uh, to make it on purpose, and and and, and another thing, just like Pretty Woman. Hmm. Now, uh, the guitar intro on Pretty Woman, you could say anything, just about after you have that intro, right. because I mean, intros are so important that they are powerful. They set the tempo. They they set the the mood, and 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 things like that that are oftentimes neglected in songwriting. But the the intro on yeah that, yeah you're right they were hooked after that they had to listen right, to that absolutely. song. Now, Dallas, I know that you wrote uh, all your early hits by yourself up until the late 1960s when you started teaming up with uh, Doodle Owens on top 40 country hits by people like Charlie Walker and Willie Nelson and others. And then moving into uh, from the late 60s into the early 70s, Brenda Lee had a, a number three hit with Johnny One Time, which you and Doodle wrote together. And Charlie Pride uh, hit number one with All I Have to Offer You Is Me, which you guys worked on together. And um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on why you you went from writing your songs uh, by yourself to collaborating and, and how you and Doodle first uh, began collaborating together in the first place? Well, honestly, I don't know how that happened. I, I, uh, I, I remember that, that Ray Baker said, hey, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to a guy uh, named Doodle, and I want you to meet him. He's really good. You might want to work together, you know. And I was open to... Uh, co-writing but like you said my 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 biggest songs are, i wrote by myself although uh, let me say this about doodle owens and whitey schaefer i wrote a lot with both of those guys are great writers in their own uh, in their own right they were just really and we got along great together we got along great together and we wrote some good songs together but uh, there's some things i like to write by myself and and they're they're, they're personal you know and and uh, there's a uh, uh, and I shared some of those ideas with that. I don't want to go into the particular songs, but but I should have written. Uh, there's a few I should have written by myself because that's uh, uh, they were they were my bio. Sure, kind of more that uh, confessional, uh, personally oriented style of writing. Um, and, and you know, I think that in thinking of writing by yourself versus uh, collaborating. Um, what are some of the pros and cons of working with a co-writer uh, ha after having worked on your own for such a long time? Well, you know, when 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 you when you're writing, of course, writing by yourself, you you you're, you're calling the shots, you know, and it's it's out of your heart. You you you're, you're going to use the word you want to use, and and uh, and and basically, uh, I did that with, with Doodlin and and Whitey. We would give and take, and a lot of times they'd have a better they'd, they'd have a better line or whatever. Yeah. And uh, and we we didn't argue over words, okay? 
we we worked together. We were uh, professional enough to know when 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 the right one came. And so, uh, but but I I think sometimes co-writing can be good depending on the context too that your co-writer has. You know, uh, sure. they bring in some connections to the table. Right. And I think that sort of, uh, again, is that balance between uh, the art, the craft of songwriting, and then the, the business side. Yeah. Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, a writing with Doodle opened up a door for me to Elvis. Right. And, and we talked about Elvis uh, a few minutes before. But man, you wrote some great songs for Elvis, uh, and especially I know Scott and I are both big fans of this era of Elvis, the from Elvis in Memphis album and uh, True Love Travels on a Gravel Road, Wearing That Loved On Look, and uh, actually I, let, let's listen to a bit of Wearing That Loved On Look. I had to leave town for a little while. You said you'd be good while I'm gone, but the look in your told me you told a lie I know there's been some carrying on Wow, what a great song. I mean, I've always loved that one, uh, Dallas, and you know, as songwriters, we hear so much about, you know, show me, don't tell me. And and you really do a great job of that in that song with these images, like the ashtrays are all full of ashes and the floor needs a touch of a mop. Um, always love that one. And it, so you said the connection to Elvis came through Doodle. How exactly did that come about? Okay. Doodle wrote for Hill and Range. Uh, Hill and Range being the legendary publishing company that, that published a lot of Elvis's songs. Yeah. And Lamar Fike was the head of Hill and Range here in Nashville. Elvis was connected to Hill and Range. See, you got that? Yeah, yeah, and, and Lamar was kind of part of the Memphis Mafia, right? Yeah, and so uh, Elvis was more prone to do a Hill and Range song, I think. Of course, he did what he wanted to do, but, but uh, uh, there was also uh, there was financial connections, too, so he did what made him money. Uh, so, but anyway, uh, that 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 was the door that was opened, you know, for me when I co-wrote with a uh, doodle, uh, especially if it's something pop that Elvis might do, then we had a shot at Elvis wow. hearing it. And you know, before you mentioned that you hadn't actually met Elvis, which means of course that you weren't at those sessions. What was it like the first time you heard playback and you heard that voice, that Elvis Presley voice, on your songs? Oh, it was good. It was good. <laughs> I got to admit it. You know, it was a. Uh, it it was a uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, kind of like a, a, a arrival time, you know, mm. bathing bathing in arrival time. <laughs> uh, it right, was, you it, made it. It was it just a great, just a great lick, you know. And and I think uh, I don't mind it, uh, admitting that because you know I'm 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 human and and uh, and it was a, a kind of a the. the pinnacle of arriving you know sure and and at the same time that elvis was recording your songs um you know jerry Lee lewis uh had hits with uh, when he walks on you and touching home that you wrote and that had to be pretty amazing to have been a teenager when rock and roll was exploding uh and here it is uh, these giants of the genre uh, elvis and, and jerry lee who really defined rock and roll when you were a kid are cutting your songs yeah 
and Jerry Lee, I tell you what, now he 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 was fun to be around. He he was. He liked me. And if if he didn't, I probably wouldn't have wanted to be around because uh, he had his rascal days. <laughs> yeah, he did. And he liked me, and and he and he loved my writing, and and uh, I just wish I'd have been around him more. I'd probably got some more cut. Yeah, uh, you probably would have gotten yourself in a lot more trouble too. <laughs> Might have. <laughs> Well, you know, a couple of other really interesting cuts that you had released around 1969, 1970 were uh, Percy Sledge's cover of True Love Travels on a Gravel Road and uh, Soul Food by Rufus Thomas on Stax Records. Get that. Backless cook from a fresh kill hog with the hair shaved off his hide. Riverbank pork salad soaked in vinegar with green onions on the side. Barbecue spare rib chicken and dumplings and legs from a dozen froze. You eat all you want but save the scraps Cause you can always feed them to your soul, though Soul food so for the better part of the 1960s, you'd been very much a Nashville guy. But there were these moments that revealed the R&B side of Dallas Frazier. O.C. Smith's version of Hickory Holler's Tramp hit the top 40 on the, the pop and the R&B charts. And now you've got this Memphis thing happening with Elvis, Percy Sledge, Rufus Thomas. Now, were you actually consciously looking to expand more into the R&B world in that time? I can't say that I just purposely you know, was aiming at that. But but since that was inside of me, I enjoyed it getting out. Uh, I enjoyed it uh, because there were things in me that that I felt like I couldn't do here in in this right, town, right. and so I kept them down. And that when I say that, I'm I'm not, I'm not being uh, I'm not being hypocritical about my likes or dislikes because what I did in the country feel is is real i grew up a country a country boy and and uh and i enjoyed the country music i wrote i wish i had more of it more success in it. but but at the same time there there was that horn that was in me that wanted to get out and and i just never had much outlet for it there wasn't any outlet here for sure. it sure yeah, and the 1960s was a time of greater racial segregation um, in in all of society, but also in the world of music. But things were they were beginning to change at that time. There was uh, specifically with your music, I think, a, a cross racial appeal. Um, and I even think of someone like Charlie Pride, who of course is African American, um, but very much a traditional country singer. And uh, you had more number one singles with Charlie than you had with any other artist. Uh, he hit the top spot with "All I Have to Offer You Is Me," which we mentioned a moment ago. Um, I'm so afraid of losing you again. Uh, I can't believe that you've stopped loving me. And then who am I? Uh, all these songs went to number one. Uh, and so you had this really successful uh, partnership um, with Charlie. Tell us about your relationship with him and, and what the chemistry was between his performances and your songs. Well, when I met Charlie Pride, and, and, and we, we just hit it off. We just hit it off. We had magic. And uh, he was my buddy and I was his buddy. And uh, uh, it was always just a delight uh, to to write something for him or to aim something at him, and uh, and I just uh, uh, I, I I had a I had a good relationship with him, and and I still do. I saw him just about oh three three weeks ago. Now, Dallas, as the nineteen seventies progressed, you showed no signs of slowing down. 
Uh, Tanya Tucker had her first number one single with What's Your Mama's Name in 1973, um, which she wrote with uh, Peanut Montgomery, who is Melba Montgomery's brother. Um, Johnny Russell had a hit with Baptism of Jesse Taylor, which he wrote with uh, Whitey Schaefer, who we've already talked about. And in fact, you and, and Whitey wrote a lot of songs together. So it was really a period of, of branching out beyond Doodle Owens as your sole writing partner. And um, what led you to expand your co-writer circle at that time? Well, uh, Whitey, Whitey, of course, Whitey was a good friend of mine. And uh, we had written a few things together. Uh, 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 during the time that I wrote with Doodle and and and, Pe- and Peanut Montgomery and Melba, they were real good friends of mine. And and when I'd go down there every once in a while, I mean, I didn't have any, uh, I didn't have any uh, kind of commitment that I couldn't write with anybody. If if something came along, or if we just decided we wanted to work, like me and Peanut, we wrote we wrote a, a several songs together and happened to get a hit. Uh, yeah, and you were getting lots of hits uh, during that time and. Uh, but then in, in early 1976, which was the same year that you were actually inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, you abruptly walked away and left the music business behind. Uh, so what happened? Well, uh, like I said, again, this is hard to explain. I, but I just, uh, it was a spiritual thing. It had to do with spirituality that I just, I just wanted to stop and get away. And uh, I wanted to. I, I moved out of town, out here in the country, and I just I dropped it off. Wow. I thought maybe uh, I would get back into it uh, and after resting up a couple of years or so. And and uh, one thing I had I had just I, I was I was a really a, a hardcore alcoholic, oh. and um, I uh, I wanted to I wanted to get my head clear. But then uh, two years went to three and four and five, and, and before you know it I, it, I just wasn't writing anymore. And I stayed gone a long time. Yeah, I know that um, your faith is very important, well, really the, the most important thing in your life. Um, and so it sounds like you were really wrestling with some of those temptations and, and some of the uh, pitfalls maybe that, that come along with just being a part of, of the music business and trying to reconcile those um, competing impulses, you felt like you just needed to to step away and and kind of start fresh, spiritually speaking. Yeah, you're right. That, that I appreciate you putting it that way because sometimes this is such a hard thing to explain to people, especially those that don't understand where I'm coming from. Uh, but but some things don't mingle well, uh, and 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 a. Uh, uh, alcohol and nightlife does not uh, does, is not a good thing for me. Oh, wow. It might it may be harmless to to some people, but not to me. Yeah, makes sense. Although I, I find it very interesting that even though you sort of walked away from the songwriting business, you continued to have great success on the charts as a songwriter. Um, in 1980 and 1981, you had three number one country singles, and here you are virtually retired. Um, Amy Lou Harris's recording of Beneath Still Waters, Gene Watson's version of 14 Carat Mind, and the Oak Ridge Boys cover of Elvira, which not only went to number one on the country charts, but was a, a number five pop hit. Um, so it's just amazing to me that, that you continued to, to very much be a presence. Well, I attribute uh, that good fortune to the Lord. I honestly do. Uh, it, it seems like that uh, that uh, God has taken care of me and my family and... and uh, and uh, uh, I'm I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful. I got a lot to be grateful for. Yeah, I'd say so. Now you mentioned Elvira, 
And uh, a lot of people probably know that song mostly from the Oak Ridge Boys version, but of course you had your own version. Let's listen to a bit of it. And then afterwards, I'd love to hear the story of how that song came about. The idea came from a street sign in East Nashville, down at uh, in a little community called Inglewood, close to Inglewood. That's where the, that's where the idea was. Wow, so you're just driving around and you saw that sign, huh? Yeah, me and Ray Baker was coming from uh, town, and back in those days, uh, uh, Interstate 65 wasn't even finished, and so th- to come out to Madison. Uh, or Gallatin, where I live now, you had to you had to take a uh, Gallatin Road, which was uh, come right through Hendersonville and out to Gallatin. That was the highway. <laughs> and I know in the '60s and '70s, you recorded four albums as Dallas Frazier, the artist. Some on RCA, some on Capitol. And I'm curious to know what are some of the differences between writing for another artist versus writing for yourself as the artist. Well, yeah, there there is a difference there because I would write things for me probably that I might not even pitch to somebody else. Well, yeah, uh, I shouldn't say I wouldn't pitch them to somebody else, but but, but I would write you know, like humorous things for me. Uh, I, I, Big Mabel Murphy is one of my favorite songs, and uh, that, that would be a song that, that uh, like, if I was going to do an album for a label or something like that, that would be included for sure. Yeah, that's a great one. And, and I believe Diana Ross did uh, a live version of that song, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, the story is that she wanted to, she wanted to single that song, and but there was a, a, a dispute amongst the publishers and stuff, and so it didn't happen. Yeah. But anyway, I appreciated her doing it. That's one of my favorite songs, yeah. Now, with all the hits that you've had, are there any that, that are like the ones that got away? Um, a song that you wrote that you really thought would be a hit or you thought the world would respond to and it just didn't didn't go as far as you thought it would or didn't get heard? Um, Little and I wrote a song called uh, Sunshine Joe. Kenny Rogers. He, he put it in an album, and, and I, I just really, you know, I just really believed in that song. Then we had songs that... Uh, uh, I had a number one song I wrote on a beach down in, in Florida and sent it up to Ray, and, and uh, it was number one by Jack Green called Until My Dreams Come True. Really? And I didn't even want to write it. Oh, I was on vacation. Ray called me and asked me to do it, and so I, I had to go rent a re- tape recorder, and and I, I, actually I was ticked off about it. I was working <laughs> hard, and I wanted to rest. But anyway... I was glad I did it because it went to number one. Yeah, uh, and you you never know which ones are going to wind up being the hits and and which ones are not. Of course, if anybody could could figure that out for sure, they'd make a billion dollars, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I, I wish I had that ability myself. Well, Dallas, we just want to say thanks so much for spending your time with us and telling us these stories. We've had a great time. Well, thank you guys, and have a blessed day. Thanks for listening to this episode of Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. What an amazing opportunity to have a great conversation with the legendary Dallas Frazier about his amazing career. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to the iTunes store and leave us a five-star review, and perhaps a comment to let others know how much you like the show. Also, be sure to go to our website at songcraftshow.com. Sign our mailing list on the lower left-hand corner of the page so that we can let you know about upcoming episodes and all the news to keep you informed of what's happening in the world of Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters.
How many girls choose cotton dress world when they could have satins and lace and stand by her?